Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All Things Podcast, episode number 57, Wireframes, Mockups, and Prototypes. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far and want to support us, there are a couple ways that you can do that. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you're listening to this on. You can also check us out on Patreon. Remember, that's patreon.com slash HTML All the Things. You can check out all the tiers there. We only have a couple of tiers, but the $3 one will give you a shout out on the show and we will list your link in the show notes as well. And probably the most important thing you can do to help us out is just share this with your friends, whether that be on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever the heck else you share things. Let your friends know that we are here and they should listen. And also, we have a Discord server, so if you want to hang out with us, get some help with some development stuff or whatever it is you want to do, you can check us out there. That link will also be in the show notes. But, as we always do, I'm going to pass it on to Mike for the weekly pain point section. So, Mike, take it away. All right. So, my weekly pain point section is bashing my head against the wall. Uh, no, no, it's that, not. That's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, Step one. I mean, that, that would be a pretty big weekly pain point. But, no, it is a cross-platform development. Uh, specifically trying to integrate two different cross-platform technologies, one being Cordova, one being Flutter, and trying to make them work together. That's – it's kind of a mess. It's a little bit tough. I'm trying to learn essentially Java at this point just to try to have like a, a thing that can talk between the two. So try to make an interface between my Cordova side and my uh, Flutter side, I'm using Java for the Android side, and then I'll actually have to do the same thing with Swift when I want to do an iOS. So I'm not looking forward to that, but Java is proving to be kind of a pain. If you know Java really well and you're listening to this, uh, hop in our Discord server and let me know because I could definitely use some help with a couple of really basic things, I think. I'm not hugely experienced with it, so even if it just like if you know it to the core, that would be great for me. So that's it for me, though. Matt, take it away. So my week of pain point this week is actually sort of identifying UX circles, as I call them. So weird UX things, methods, uh, procedures, whatever you want to call them, that have you going in circles. So one just happened to me right now, actually, which was that I ha- I made an order last night on Amazon. It was one day shipping. The person comes in, I don't know, a couple minutes ago, whatever it was, 10, 15 minutes ago, I get the order. I come back into this room. And I have an, I have a, uh, I don't want to say her name. I have an Alexa unit in here. Okay. I said it quick enough. She didn't pick it up. So I have one of those units in here and she was like flashing yellow. Like I have a notification and she was trying to let me know that I have a delivery, but it's too late for me to have answered the door. Like it's not like I can rely on that flashing yellow light and be like, man, I'm going to wait for this flashing yellow light to answer the door. And if I'm home where this unit is supposed to be, why do I need to know that if I answered the door? Now, maybe this is because we're, I'm in a house and so I people under like I I heard the door knock or whatever. Maybe it's different for people in an apartment, but to me that's a bit of a UX circle. If uh, you disagree, hit me up on Twitter. Now, <laughs> as I always say, but this week uh, it's going to be a, a Matt or a me heavy episode. Uh, so we're going to be going through sort of our creation process, just sort of the introductory steps, not the actual websites themselves, just the introductory sort of designs, uh, which include, of course, the wireframes, the mockups, and the prototypes. How we do them, why we do them, do we always do them, etc., etc., etc. All your questions answered after the break. So 
Creation no process. What's that? There's no break. There's no break yet. <laughs> we should have. You should have come in with like a slogan, like like Skippy peanut butter is the best. You know, like a real corny radio. I mean, ad. if Skippy peanut butter wants to sponsor this podcast, they can go ahead. But I'm not. No, no, not I'll even. I'll advertise it for free. Like just <laughs> just send me a jar of Skippy peanut butter, I guess. But any <laughs> how cheap. Like, how cheap are we really, right? Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> just man. One jar is all it takes. One jar is, man. Oh. That's a that's good not, slogan. That's not a bad slogan. Yeah. One jar yeah. is all it takes. <laughs> Although, apply that to many other questionable things. Take it out of any sort of context and you have something else. I mean, we already have it. There's an audio tidbit <laughs> of us saying it. So, uh. Yeah. One jar feel, is all I, I it takes, Mike. I'm, I'm going to look it. intently into your webcam <laughs> eyes. One one jar is all it takes. Oh, I don't like that. Ah, I'm bumping my microphone. It just made a huge peak, so people's ears are just going to be like ripping their headsets off. But anyway, going back to the creation process, um, basically, we always like to size up a new project before deciding on what part of the creation process we're going to do. So a lot of larger companies or a lot of people who are sort of more organized or really kind of pride themselves on being organized and having a procedure will say, you know, you basically need to have the same procedure for every website. Like they kind of group websites as like one procedure. But to, for us, since kind of websites are our bread and butter, we like to kind of have subcategories. And, and what we do is we, we, we size them up. So basically we decide, you know, do you need a wireframe? Do you need a mock-up? Do you need a prototype? Do you need all three? Do you need two of them? Do you need, like, what do you need? And we compare with other websites. We do everything. We do like sort of a, just a straight up vetting procedure. And this modular procedure actually allows us to cut costs and secure savings for customers that don't necessarily need to be the subject of an entire design, an entire design process. Because if you really look at like an extensive design process, there's multiple meetings, there's multiple documents. There's, like I said, wireframes, prototypes, everything. There's iterations on each of them. It's just a whole big thing. And there's a lot of customers out there that just need it need it quick or need it cheap. Um, I'm constantly hitting a bag, so that's some good background audio. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So they need they need constant they, or they don't they don't need the constant and the bureaucratic, I guess, procedure. They literally just need their website done and they need it done now or whatever. So I'm gonna go I'm gonna go through these three these three pieces, but note that we don't always do them. And as we go through them as well, we do them less and less. So for example, wireframes are almost always done. Mockups are done second least. And then prototypes are done even more in, 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 excuse me, even more rare circumstance. So for wireframes, if you don't know what a wireframe is, basically it is a, it's kind of like a rough diagram. So it's done in black and white and it's a rough diagram either created on paper or created digitally. We use Balsamic Cloud for it. And that basically just, it's more or less just a layout diagram. So it just shows the layout of the user interface. And in more, in, you know, in most cases, what we'll do is we'll create multiple concepts. So multiple different layouts based on what the user has shown us, whether, whether the customer has shown us things like other websites that they're interested in, their competitors, who they're trying to compete with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then once we kind of have that narrowed down, then we, then we sort of start the process and we start making the concepts, give them the concepts, and then they can sort of start vetting it. So basically what happens is, is we come up with different modular pieces. So let's say a, just a real standard small business website. So you need, you know, your nav bar, 
you need, let's say, four to five pages, and then your homepage is a big piece of your of your thing. So let's say you have your slider, which is a big thing. Let's say you have your three-column layout where you have, you know, an icon or a picture and a little blurb, so you're like, you know, secure and whatever it is. If it's a security company, you just say, you know, this is a, this is secure and this and that. It's just like the three little catch words to get people to start reading. And then you have like your different sections on the page. Maybe it's a single pager where you have your constant or your contact form on there, whatever. You figure out those modular pieces. You figure out what pages you need. You figure out all that stuff and you start laying them out in different ways based on what the user has shown you. And then you kind of put them all together into three different concepts. So maybe the one concept has a nice big full page slider. The other one has no slider, but it has a nice cover photo. The other one doesn't have a cover, doesn't have a cover photo or a slider at all. It has more text than another one. And what this allows you to do is allows you to, you know, come up with two to three different concepts. We'll usually do, we will generally do three, sometimes four, up to six, depending on if the person's rather picky. And we allow them to basically say, okay, now that we've sent you these, which sort of interface do you like? Which one do you want to choose? Do you want to choose this one? Do you want to choose that one? Do you want to choose this one? Oftentimes they'll just actually choose one full concept. They'll be like, concept three, let's do it. But making it, though, making up those little modular pieces, like the, like the clear differences, like the slider, the contact form, the little three column thing. What it allows it to do is some people will say, well, I like the slider of concept one. I like the footer of concept two. I like this on concept four, whatever it is. And then you can kind of piece together a design where, you know, you literally just copying and pasting the pieces over, make this sort of new concept layout, send them that. And then they'll be like, oh yeah, I like that. Let's do that. So it, it saves you time. It saves you, it saves them money because it's, it's quick. And generally speaking, it actually doesn't go beyond this. So a lot of our customers will just say, I'm happy with this layout. Here's my photos. Here's my logo. Here's my company colors. Just kind of have at it. You know, I don't want a mock-up. I don't want you to constantly bug me about mock-ups and how it looks and what colors and what the shader is. I just need this website up next month or next week. Just please do it now. And so we'll just kind of proceed from this point onward. Now, this wireframing step is actually rather crucial for UI and UX purposes as well. So obviously this is a UI layout. Excuse me, I'm dying as well. <clears throat> Obviously, this is a UI layout, so you're getting a lot of the UI hashed out. But what it allows you to do is it allows you to go into a little bit. It's not quite as much as the mockups or the prototypes, but a little bit of the U of the UX stuff. So, for example, you might come up with those modular pieces and start putting everything together and then realize, wait a second, two of my contact forms are different. And that's going to create a bit of a UX problem because people aren't going to understand, like, why am I... Why are my two contact forms different? Different. Um, we've we've had this before with industrial clients where they'll have different forms for like, oh, you know, submit submit an email here if you need to like get a part number. Submit an email here if you just need to contact us. But generally speaking, from a UX perspective, those forms should be the same in terms of layout, but different in terms of what the user needs to enter in terms of content. And so that's that's kind of where you'll kind of catch some of those UX things where you're like, oh, this one has you know, no, no submit button it has a send button. This one has a submit button and a clear button. That one doesn't have a clear button. So you'll kind of catch those little things. So it's kind of like the first filter in finding those little UI UX problems that you can kind of fix and kind of change around and kind of edit just to make sure that you don't, they don't go throughout the process. So I'll kind of pass it off to Mike if he has any comments. No problem. So with wireframes, another thing that it allows you to do is have that kind of first technical conversation with your client. So before the wireframe happens, you're obviously going to have a requirements gathering conversation with them. What do they need? After that, you're going to do the wireframes. But it allows you to have another 
second kind of meeting or a back and forth with an email, another conversation with your client where now you're talking, like Matt was saying, with more UX in mind, more uh, actual functionality of the site in mind. And one thing that I have I have noticed, uh, whether it be through our interactions with our smaller clients and the smaller websites or uh, our larger, more constant clients where we're constantly iterating on projects and stuff like that, wireframes is a really good spot to start changing things and go back, go back and forth between different designs. Because obviously, it's a much quicker process than doing any sort of mock-ups or prototypes. And the other thing it allows you to do is also lay out your entire kind of procedure with your client. So every client is different. Um, a lot of clients, you'll send them a wireframe, like Matt was saying, they'll fully understand it, they'll pick one, and they'll send it back to you saying like, do it. But some clients don't understand the concept of a wireframe. And that's not on them. That's like, it's not because like, they don't, you know, understand basic things. But no, it's because their their mind works a little bit differently. They're They're used to more interactive and more uh like visual representations of what they're going to have so they're like they sometimes come back to you and are like well i see the wireframe but this is nothing like i want my site to look like like i want my site to look like this and they start going into a more design phase and this is where you kind of have to like pump the brakes on them have that meeting and be like no listen uh the wireframe is not your design this is just how your website's going to look from a functionality and a layout standpoint so this is like you know you you, have, you kind of have to explain it to them sometimes to for for them to understand how the whole design process works and having a having that wireframe step and that explanation will allow you to have more of a like an, a more intricate relationship with your client and it'll allow you to answer a lot of those early questions before they get caught up and you start you know putting a lot of time into a more high fidelity mock up so i found that it like matt said we always do wireframes and Mostly with every single uh, other project that I do, even based off of our like more longstanding clients, we always start with wireframes. Sometimes it'll be as easy as like, okay, I've done a wireframe, show the wireframe, looks good, do the high fidelity design. But so, but a lot of the time it'll be like, I've done a wireframe, uh, that looks good, but let's change A, B, and C, and D, and then we'll go do another iteration of wireframes, and then we do the design. But I, I like the flexibility of this step. I think it's an important step for everyone to kind of try to master. I'm not the greatest at it, but uh, I've definitely had a lot of discussions in a wireframe setting, and Matt definitely handles most of our wireframes. Uh, but for me, when I look at a wireframe, I understand f- even from a, like a JavaScript, a business logic standpoint, I know what I'm going to have to start preparing. And sometimes I'll start doing the basic logic for stuff when I get the wireframe. So it's a good stepping stone into a, the the developing side of it as well. That's really, that's a really good point because you, sometimes you need an excuse to open dialogue, especially if the customer is busy. And so it's really important to kind of have that entryway where you're like, Hey, I completed this task. You need to take a look at this. And a lot of clients will be more than, more than, you know, happy to say, Oh, good. You know, you completed something. Let's, let's kind of get this on, the, uh, get this kind of moving. Let's get this going. And so they'll then kind of open a dialogue with you and they'll actually talk to you a bit more and that type of thing. So that, that's really good. That's a really good, like a little bit of insight there. Um, it's also interesting that I didn't know that you guys actually did that with the, with the larger clients. So that, that that's interesting as well. Oh, Wireframes yeah. are like a really good, almost like a sketch, if you will. Yeah. It, it's just a quick sanity check. Like, are we, are we sure this is going to look good? Are we sure there's like, there's not too many buttons here? You know, let's just do a quick look at and see, oh yeah, this looks outrageous. Let's get rid of this type thing. So it's definitely, yeah, it's, it, it's, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things like if you're paying someone hourly, 
you want to make sure that they can do something quickly and you can kind of go into a step where you can approve at least the base aspect of something. So a wireframe is like the very basic generic uh, layout of what you're going to be building before they actually go and build it. Because a lot of the times you'll catch very simple things that you thought you expressed easily in words in the requirements phase, but you didn't. And the de- and the de- designer, the developer didn't understand what you were saying. They did it in a wireframe and then you can catch it quickly there and be like, oh no, that's not what I wanted. So that's right. a, it's a huge portion like that. That's the main reason for wireframes, right? Something quick and then a quick iteration on whatever it is that you didn't understand in the, in the requirements phase. That That's a really good, that's a really good point too. It, 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 that, the fact that like wireframes are really helpful in larger teams is a good is a good point. Like when I when I talk about this procedure that we do, it's normally with smaller clients. Like some of the larger companies will want everything. They want the the wireframes, the mockups, the prototypes. But that wireframe step is really really crucial. And like ninety eight percent of the time, we end up having to do it. Very few times will someone say, "I just want you to make something similar to this website. Just go." Wireframes are like a skill that you should really learn to just spin them up really quick. Just learn the tool. Like choose a tool. Make sure it fits all your goals and just learn that tool because you're going to use it a lot, especially if you're doing client work like of any sort at all. Because you're more of a developer and you're still doing a lot of the wireframe stuff. I do a lot more of the UI development, right? And so obviously I'm using it a lot, but it, like it, it's clearly touching every every aspect. So it's definitely like a skill that everyone should learn to an extent. Absolutely. Uh, moving on to mockups then. So what a mockup is, is it is a realistic representation of the final product. And they typically include photos and some dummy written content in order to get a feel for what the product really looks like. So a really basic example would be an actual WordPress theme is basically a high fidelity mockup. They have, you know, your lorem ipsum. They have like a, you know, fake title. They have the lorem ipsum, you know, kind of gibberish text for the, the blog post. They have stock photos in there. They have page navigation and stuff like that which is kind of getting into the more more of the prototype stuff but if you just look at like let's say you took a printout of one of the pages of a wordpress theme that would be an example of a mock-up now you can do these in a variety of programs sketch is a good one adobe adobe xd is the one that we use for example there's a couple others out there as well of course some of the really big ones um indesign i think is one is that right indesign I think so. Uh, I know InVision, you can do mock-ups as well. Oh, InVision, whatever. So th- there's a bunch out there, you know, kind of check out. But like we just kind of stick to Adobe XD. It's good for what we do because this is actually a more rare step. A lot of the people don't want to pay for this. A lot of the people don't care enough and they know that they can just change it in the in the long run. And a lot of people aren't UI experts. They just need, they trust us to spin up something that users are going to understand how to use and they understand that we're the professionals in the space so they just kind of let us do it and we have the the design in our head so they just skip the mock-up and that saves them hundreds if not thousands depending on the size of the websites in dollars so basically in terms of a mock-up though what it allows you to do is it allows you to in terms from a ui ux perspective is allows you to it allows you excuse me to see clashing colors clashing colors clashing fonts it's really hard to tell that from a wireframe. So from a wireframe, you know, you generally don't really mess around with the fonts too much. You usually just kind of use the default ones. Or if you mess around with them a bit, that's all you've done is just mess around with them a bit. You haven't actually gone through and been like, oh, this is my primary font, my secondary font, my whatever. This mock-up requires you to get the color codes for like, you know, your primary, secondary, tertiary colors, for example. It requires you to get some of the graphical assets. So whether that be stock photos or whether it be some of the photos that are already prepared that will go on the website. It requires you to get that content that may or may not be prepared already or get the gibberish content or sample content, whatever. It also requires you to learn certain things about the 
about the meta of stuff. So for example, if you in your wireframe had like a meta area on a blog post, like, oh, this is where we're going to list the the date, the time, the whatever. Sometimes the actual client might be like, oh, we don't want to list the date on here, but we will, we do want to list the time or something. I mean, that sounds outrageous, but that meta area will be adjusted. And so this is the place where you'd catch that because you'll actually write in the actual date, right? Like, oh, it's, you know, it's August, August this, 2019. It was posted at this time. And then the client goes, no, I don't want the time there. No, I don't want the date there. Excuse me, whatever. So that, that's kind of where, that's kind of where that, that's kind of what this catches, what the mockups catch. Um, and then it kind of goes into prototypes from here. So I'm going to pass it off to Mike if he has any comments about this. Yeah. So mockups, uh, I don't have too, too much to say about them. I'm more, I work more closely with prototypes for sure, but I know with mockups, they're more targeted towards the design element for sure. Like you were saying, uh, and it's the, it's the ability to show your customer that what the website's actually going to look like in a certain form. So it's not going to be responsive or anything. Obviously, it's going to be mostly a picture, essentially. Like that's what all a mockup is. It's just a picture with no functionality. Uh, but it allows them to see, like, you can sometimes put it in a frame of an iPad. You can sometimes put it in a frame of a computer and it, that shows really well to the customer what their site's going to look like. And at this point, before actually going in and doing the CSS and the HTML layout, you can go back and do some adjustments here and there. Now, again, adjusting a mock-up is a fairly time-intensive process and has to be, you know, worked out. Like, if if you're going to be doing a complete redesign of a mock-up, that's essentially adding the exact amount of time that you were just spent on the mock-up before. So you kind of have to relay that information to the customer. And that's why, the again, the wireframe phase is so important. Definitely, uh, is to definitely. Minimize that as much as possible is to get as close to the final product with the first mockup as you can. Now, again, like Matt was saying, in the mockup phase, they could go in and be like, I need you to, you know, move this text down a little bit. I need you to change this color. The coloring is a very big portion. It's something that I don't understand very well, but I understand the fact that you need to get the color coordination right. And here's where they'll be like, well, my brand color is a little bit like more like this than it is like that. These are my brand colors. You should reverse these as as, as a secondary and the primary, stuff like that. Those kinds of things are easy to change and easy to show real quick in a mock-up. Uh, whereas any sort of large major design, like structural changes, those are the kinds of things where you have to kind of push back to your customer and be like, well, I know better. This is why I did that. And you kind of have to explain yourself quite a bit because again, they hired you as the professional, like Matt was saying, a lot of times, even when they pass, pass off and like, you don't need to do the mock-up, it's, you're still in charge of doing the design. You might even do it yourself uh, just to see how the website's going to look depending on how, what you, what your, um, process for designing is like so it's a it's kind of is an important step but for the designer and when you have a mock-up uh you can kind of pass it off to a css developer if you're if you're a larger corporation like a larger agency uh and they can do the feasibility aspect of it because sometimes you'll design something crazy and they'll be like well this is going to take x amount of hours and that i'm not going to do that and then you can kind of go back and readjust a little bit that's a really good point is, is sometimes it's like a collaborative effort. Like you're going to catch more and more things as you go through the process. 
with those wireframes or with the projects that only do wireframes, generally those are smaller businesses, you know, small to medium businesses from our experiences or from our experience. Sometimes a small business is like super professional and they want the mock-up, but that's exactly why they want this stuff sorted out now. They don't want to have the customer experience any sort of downfall. They don't want to have the customer experience any sort of uh, strangeness or weirdness on the site, even if it's just for you know a week while we figure out some more of the UX stuff. They're more about putting out a, a good product right away and a product that's flushed out and kind of iterated on right away. And this is actually exactly what it does. Because as we know with software and, and websites, it's no different. Every time you iterate, it gets better and better and better. Some iterations go kind of you know off the wayside and make it worse. But at the end of the day, the software does get better the, the trend is upward, basically. It's getting better and better and better. And doing these different steps, wireframe to mockups to prototypes, basically allows you to do more iterations before it hits the public rather than the public essentially getting version 1.0, if that makes sense. You've done a bunch of design iterations. Now version 1.0 of, of the actual website is actually, you know, more like iteration six. It's just the first one the public sees. So that, that's kind of where we're getting at with this. And this kind of leads directly right into prototypes as well. So more or less the prototype section of this is, is really utilizing those mockups. So in our case, you know, we'll use, we'll do mockups in, in Adobe XD, and then there's a prototyping, you know, section to that software, and, and the same goes with a bunch of the other softwares out there. And that other software, or that, or sorry, that other functionality basically is literally adding functionality to your mockups. So a prime, really basic example would be you have a nav bar, obviously, on each of your mockups. You know, you have a mockup of, let's say, your homepage, your about page, your contact page. Your prototype would just literally have the nav bar so that when I click, instead of it just being a photo, when I click on about us, it goes to the about us mockup. When it, when I click on contact us, it takes us to the contact mock, the contact us mockup. And you can do some extra functionality in there. You can do some other things like you know, maybe some really rudimentary, uh, animations or sometimes people want to do full animations. It really, really depends on your procedure and how serious your client is and how serious you are with it. But at the end of the day, this basically just allows you to get even closer. Like this is like almost the product. It, it doesn't maybe do all the calculations. It doesn't have the content, but is basically the frame, right? The hat, you have the nav bar, the footer, the design, the typography, the looks, the navigation, everything is working except for the actual content, the living part of the website in most cases. So this is sort of where prototyping comes into play. And what this really helps is UX specialists. So it allows the user and UX specialists to see if there's any issues in navi- in that navigation, like I mentioned. So things like links that are unnecessary, or if you're constantly trying to click something that doesn't work. So a good example would be, we've had times where we'll have a home button in the nav bar, but no one seems to click on that. They'll kind of, like, let's say we give it to the client and the client gives it to a couple of their employees and we're using it as well. And we find that all of us are not clicking the home button instinctively, but we're clicking the logo and the logo isn't a link. So then we'll kind of edit it and be like, okay, clearly this home button really isn't needed. Let's kind of kick out this home button and just kind of make that, make that logo the home button. And so little things like that, little, little iterations like that, that'll make it really smooth for the customer upon the first production build, upon that first public build. That's the type of stuff you find in prototypes. And this is even more so, like these are very simple examples. Like this stuff is even more so in complex apps, like web apps that have a lot of data or, um, any sort of web app that requires you, requires the user to enter a lot of information. You want to make sure that the navigation through the information, like, you know, generally they're entering it into tables. So the navigation through the tables on, let's, let's say a touch screen is easy. You can test things like, oh, we need to make sure that it'll work on, 
a specific device. Like, oh, our employees all carry an iPhone 5, and that's a very small screen for today. So let's make sure our prototype is, you know, really, really tested on on uh, iPhone 5 to make sure that all the functionality is there. It's not janky. They're not going to miss anything. Like, that's a big thing, too. M- basically, what you're trying to get at is you're trying to get more than just working. You're trying to make the experience, like I said, the UX specialists are doing, or would, would like, love this step. You're trying to make the experience good. You're not just trying to say like, well, it does work. You just have to awkwardly click this button. It's like, well, that's great that that functionality is there, but it'd be really nice if it was ironed out where, you know, I could just click that logo button. I could just, I could not click in circles. I could not get weird home assistant delivery notifications, stuff like that. It would, that type of stuff kind of goes hand in hand with the prototype stage. Yeah. And, uh, I, do a lot of work in the prototype stage. One catch that I want to mention real quick, uh, when you're in this stage and you send your links off to the customer, uh, if they're going to be sending it off to even more like employees and stuff like that, just expect a lot of uh, random feedback over the fact that stuff isn't working. And it's going to be because when someone sees this, it's going to be kind of a link to them. They're going to think it's a live website. Like no matter what you say, you can put it in big red bold text in the email 100% of the time, you're going to get someone that emails you back being like, hey, listen, our uh, database isn't isn't working here. Like, why can't I enter in my, like, you know, employee number and get, get the information? However, your web app is working, whatever. So just make sure that you're okay with that kind of stuff. Answer those questions as they come. Be like, listen, this is a prototype. None of the functionality is in here. We're just looking at how people will navigate across the site, how people will get to the features that you're talking about, but not actually how they're going to use them. And when you explain that, people usually understand. But yeah, anyway, that's a catch that I've definitely run into many, many times. People look at a wireframe or people will look at a prototype, sorry, and expect it to be a fully functioning website. And no matter how many times you explain it, someone will always come back to you and say, like, this isn't working. But regardless of that, Prototypes are a really important step, especially when you're working on something very complex, when you have a large team, when you're working on something for a company uh, in particular, and they have many, many uh, employees that are going to be using a tool. This isn't like critical. You can't, I don't think you can do something without this prototype step, because if you have to go in and adjust CSS and HTML every time they find a little catch, uh, it's going to take you forever. So when I when I'm working with larger clients, when when I'm working with the consistent clients, we spend quite a long time on this. Sometimes weeks going back and forth, like maybe four or five, six meetings with the client, just on the prototype step. Where they'll like we'll send off a prototype. Uh, we usually use a program called Envision, but again, like Matt was saying, Adobe XD can do it. Many many other ones can do it, but it essentially just gives you kind of like a a wrapper for your. A prototype and allows you to assign click elements to the picture. It's essentially just, you know, navigating between pictures. That's all it is. Uh, but it allows the customer to get a feel for what they're going to actually be seeing in production without you actually having to build anything out. And yes, this is an expensive step as well, right? But when you're looking at it from a grand scheme of things and when you're looking at it from a large customer's perspective, they would rather spend the money here than spend, you know, exponentially more money having to adjust a actual live website uh, in in demo or in production or having the situation where they go back and forth and be like, well, we can't adjust this anymore because you agreed to the wireframe or whatever. 
and this is how it's going to be. So most of the time, a larger company will be more than happy to pay for the prototype step and do this back and forth and spend the time with you because they know that it's a, you know, a long-term investment. And then when you build something out for them, you're going to have a lot less changes as you go through. So again, important step for larger companies. We don't do this very often for smaller companies as I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, uh, Matt, because again, it's kind of be like, what are you going to do? You're going to show them the how to navigate to the about section or the contact section. It doesn't make sense to do it. For no, them, it doesn't. It, 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 and some companies will do it. And I don't know whether it's just to make money or whether it's to specifically just go through their procedure. But at the end of the day, I think your procedure is better if it's flexible because it's just costing them money. Exactly. And I, I fully agree with that. I think the benefit of not being an agency and being a small, a small company is that, uh, we're able to adjust for each client and we're able to kind of satisfy the client's needs and give them the budget that they, they can do the best with. Uh, now, having said that, you don't want to go super low budget, right? Like you don't want to take on a website that will take you weeks and weeks and weeks and only charge 400 or $300. Um, but you want to do it so that you're satisfied and the customer satisfied without having to have a bunch of overhead. Like, cause like Matt was saying, I've seen many, many quotes from different people for a very simple website where their quote is like 35 pages long. They tell you that they have to go through the wireframe section, which will take two months, the pro mock-up, which will take a month, the prototype section, which will take six. Like it's, it's an unreasonable amount of time and an unreasonable amount of money to do something that's usually fairly simple and that for a regular small business client, they don't care about a lot of these other things. So hacking and slashing what you can to make a good product uh, is there's nothing wrong with that. But again, when you go through these phases with a large company, you'll see the value in them and why you need to go through them. Uh, so don't cut them out of everything that you do. When when you see a web app that needs to be tested by many, many people, that's the kind of clue that, I, that, that you get where you need that prototype step and where you need the multiple meetings of back and forth, making sure that your prototype is flushed out before you start uh, designing the actual app. Now, sometimes what we'll do to kind of accelerate the process, because during the prototype and during the mock-up, there's not much development that you can do, and that's kind of dead time, depending on how your schedule is looking. What we'll sometimes do is we'll do it in phases. So we'll wireframe, mock up, and prototype the initial like couple pages, something that will be something very basic, so that we can start the, the development process as the more complex stuff is getting wireframed, mocked up, and prototyped. So you can do it in phases so that all your entire team can kind of be working. If you're alone, uh, obviously you want to kind of control it as well so that you're not overwhelming, overwhelming yourself. And that, that, that's a really good, that's a really good tidbit as well is that the, the size of your company, the size of your team does matter and the size of the task does matter as well. So, you know, when I'm speaking, like I said, I'm speaking from our perspective, which is, you know, a two to three man operation, you know, maybe a couple more depending on maybe up to five, I would say at most, we're able to tailor things like you said to each customer. We're able to decide what we want in, uh, what we want to do for customers, what they want, et cetera, et cetera. We're very much able to tailor everything to each individual customer. But once you get bigger, once you get more complex, it really does say, okay, we need to introduce some bureaucracy here. We need to know where everyone's at. We need to have people checking in. We need to have, you know, blah, blah, blah. We need to have a procedure. And we're not going to stray from this because if we do, not everyone's going to be on the same page. People are going to forget that we changed the procedure. It's just going to be a nightmare. So, you know, keep that in mind. If you have like one massive project, you know, on the go or about to start and you're like, man, I can't tailor this procedure. It's like, well, maybe not, you know, that, that 
it's not a one size fits all. It's just something that we do and just something that we suggest people do when they're at like kind of a smaller level in not that massive of projects. Um, but with that being said, we're going to pass it on to Mike for the old repeating segment web news. So Mike, take it away. All right. So this week's web news is 5G mobile networks. Uh, I think it's an interesting uh, topic that needs to be discussed because it does relate to the web. Uh, it relates to obviously how people will start using the web in the future. Um, and I just want to kind of go over what I think, how it will affect currently what we have. And and just this is going to be more theory-based because, again, we don't have anything uh, I haven't tested anything in 5G and it's been very, it's in very, very early stages of deployment. I know it's been a couple of cities already have it. A few phones have it, but, uh, we don't know what the actual implications of it yet are. But essentially what it is, is it's the next generation of mobile networks. Uh, currently we're on the 4G or LTE, if you're more familiar with that nomenclature uh, of mobile networks. So when you're on your phone and you're going out and about in the city, you'll see a little, you know, 4G or LTE symbol in the top left. That means that you're using the that mobile network and uh, you're getting those speeds essentially is what it's referring to. It's a speed. Um, it's a speed difference for the most part between 4G slash LTE and 5G. That's what we're looking at. So in the speed difference, I'll get right to it, is 5G right now. Uh, if you're close to the node, so close to the actual access point, I've seen people getting 1.4 to 1.5 gigabits a second on their, on their phones. Whereas 4G uh, is more in the realm of about, uh, if you're in a really good spot, just like the 5G, I guess, comparing apples to apples, it would be about 100, 150 um, in, in that range, like as, as essentially a best case scenario, I've maybe seen 200 at some point, but that's, those are the differences. So it's, it's almost a tenfold difference, I would say. So in, in terms of speed, uh, so with that, obviously there's a lot of implications. That means that stuff will load a lot faster on your phone, right? Uh, stuff will happen a lot quicker. You'll be able to have larger content and stuff like that. The downside of 5G and something that will kind of limit its limited, like, I, I don't know how they're going to deploy enough is that it's, it's range limited. So you have to be very close to the access point for it to work because it works on a very short wavelength. Uh, the fact it can't penetrate through buildings as well. So how they're implementing it now, as far as I know, is they're putting like these 5G nodes on lamp posts. So like, Every third lamppost will have a 5G node and they'll just go around the entire city like that. So you'll always be connected. But obviously, this is going to take a lot of money and a lot of time uh, and a lot of infrastructure change. So we, we don't have the the actual structure set up yet. I know like a couple of people, I think Marquis Brownlee did some reviews on it. He was saying that he was like he went in, into the city. I think it was Chicago or something went st stood next to a node. And yes, he got the 1.5 gigabits. Like he showed a video of it. He got 1.5 gigabits on his phone. But as soon as he went around a corner and this was like, you know, 50 meters from that access point, he got like 150. So it went down tenfold. Now 150, 150 megabits isn't bad. That's still a really quick connection. But again, going like, you know, he didn't go 100 meters. He didn't go 200 meters. He didn't go a kilometer away from the node. He went like 50 meters away or 20 meters even. So something like a really short distance, but just around like a corner of a concrete building. And he got like, he got dick like, um, ding like that. 
So in my eyes, those are going to be the biggest limitations of it for now. But for our purposes, let's say they figure those out. Let's say they figure out like they just spread it all across the world or all across the, like the United States and Canada, like the larger parts of the world. All of it's connected with 5G. You have great connections. What does that mean for web development? That's kind of what I want to talk about. What does it mean to have these crazy speeds accessible for everyone from their phones, from their laptops that are connected to these networks? How will that change the way we design websites? Will it change the way we design websites? Because I know right now a lot of people design with a very, um, you know, compressing all their images, don't have too many packages, stuff like that. I know that's a very important process of design currently. Will having a larger access to these really fast networks change that? Will it be something like, uh, let's design a website with ridiculously high resolution, ridiculously high fidelity assets, uh, maybe like videos everywhere that are just popping up and doing interesting things, explaining how a person would use the, a product that they're advertising or something like that. Like, how will it affect the current state of web development is, is essentially my question to it, knowing the fact that, like, thinking of it as it's already been implemented, um, with, with a certain percentage, like, obviously not everyone's going to have access to these speeds. So you have to kind of think about it in the way that you'll have to support both. But let's say that we are supporting both. We're supporting both the high speed and the low speed. I know there's a way to check how quick your connection is. Uh, I think it's navigator.connection.downlink. I don't know how use, how use that, uh, media string is, but let's say that it will become more used with these new connections and you can actually detect, like, let's say a website, a website will load and check, like, check your network connection and it'll see that you're on 5G and it's able to serve you content based on the fact that you're on 5G, right? I feel like that's going to be more used more often, but what do you think, Matt? What's your prognosis of, is there something that you see will change for sure based on the speeds, or do you think that everything's just going to kind of stay the same and people are still going to be optimizing everything to be low, you know, size, like a smaller size? Well, first off, I'd say that I'd say that this is this is almost almost kind of plays into the thing we talked about before where the the websites, the mobile websites in particular, were limited in comparison to the functionality of of their, you know, their desktop brethren when phones, smartphones in particular, started coming out years ago. And then now it's like, you know, things are mobile first or things are at least mobile equivalent with the desktop. And so there's functionality, you know, it's basically equivalent for the most part, if not actually enhanced on the phone because the phone has a camera and stuff. However, with that being said, one thing we have to consider is some of those limitations that you said. So the range limitations, the amount of nodes and the amount of hardware, the amount of whatever you need to put in here. A good, a good example, a good question is this. So I recently went to uh fan expo in Toronto. And when I went there years ago, probably six or seven years ago, the, for the first time you couldn't text message when you were in there, not due to reception, but because the network was being overloaded. And year over year, it got better and better to the point where maybe three or four years ago, it was completely flawless. You can now text, you can use data, you can do everything in there. And that is a massive area. It is the convention center, and they're using both halls of the Toronto Convention Center, the north and the south hall, I think it is. How many of those 5G nodes would you need? Because I understand you're saying it's a thousand people or a thousand devices per meter. 
but it's like yeah. how how many nodes are gonna have to cover that building and then you have to have like a chain of them to like kind of pump it into the building are they gonna have to be in the building are they gonna be outside the building and then you're only gonna get 5g on the edges like how is that gonna work like it seems like the actual technology is is rather limited to me so so let me let me try to quickly address that from what I know and or from what I understand uh these modules these 5g modules like these 5g access points are not of similar pricing to those massive towers that you see for 4g right like those massive towers that you see that are put on top of uh apartment buildings those are significantly more expensive than these smaller like the 5g modules are very small they're more reminiscent of a router than a massive like wireless antenna that's on top or an antenna that's on top of the apartment buildings and like cn towers and stuff like that Right. So essentially what that allows you to do is put more of them in more places. That's what their, that's what their logic is. Like make them cheap because again, 5G, the, the problem with 5G is that it doesn't penetrate, but put a lot of them everywhere. So for a convention center, and I think this is the probably the best use of 5G, it would be like five, six of those little modules, which would cost like, you know, one tenth of the amount of a tower. Uh, or even less, like maybe one hundredth or something. Like, well, however much it is, like they're, they're fairly cheap devices when you buy them in bulk, uh, and surround the entire building with it. And then again, like I, I didn't mention this before, you mentioned it right now. Was the thousand devices per meter is significantly more than the four G equivalent? I couldn't find actually how many devices per meter a four G connection could could have, but as far as I can tell from the articles that I've read, a thousand is a lot, and like it's a significantly more than what four G can handle per. Uh, per meter. So that means that again, you haven't, ha- you haven't been having issues, right? But let's say there's something even bigger, like at a convention even bigger than Fan Expo with a lot more people. I'm sure there are, though that's where 5G would kind of stand to benefit people as much, like it, in the best possible way, right? So you'll have the super f- fast speeds right. and you'll have, uh, like a, a more to the node connection and you'll have an easier an easier way of connecting to the node like it it won't be as congested that's that's the huge benefit now the other limitation is the fact that 5g modems have to be put into phones so your phone doesn't have a 5g modem my phone doesn't have a 5g modem so you'd have to buy a phone with a 5g modem but those 5g modems are extremely power hungry right now so uh from what i understood uh, when Marquis went to do his testing at one, and he got the 1.5 gigabytes down, his phone was like on fire when he was downloading a video, and it was bra- draining battery like crazy because it's it's a lot of information has to process at a single time, right? So I think we're significant, like we're pretty far away from it being a mainstream thing. There's a lot of not a lot. There's a few phones out there now, like the Note 10 5G. I think the One Plus Seven Pro 5G is available now. Uh, I think an LG phone, like LG V V fifty five G is available. Like, there's certain phones that have variations of their flagship that have a five G modem in them. But would I recommend anyone buy them? I would say no, not right now. Like, because a, it's like the battery is just going to drain like crazy. And I think that they'll come out with more efficient five G processes in the future, uh, where you'll be able to use them. I don't have a particular problem with 4g to be honest like it's fast enough for me i used to use 3g i used to disable my 4g and use 3g for 
browsing and stuff like that before and waited a little bit longer just to save on battery and to save on data and stuff. Now I don't do that because uh, my battery is fine and stuff like that. But I was fine with even those speeds. But the point that I'm trying – like the the thing that I want to ask is let's say that all this stuff is solved in the next five years. Phones come out. They're great phones. They have 5G – like every phone has a 5G networking network card and even the budget $100 phones. You know what I mean? Like everything has 5G networking. All around the the major cities, they have 5G networking. So let's say like, you know, 50% of people in the world are connected to 5G. Right. Right. Now, 50% still aren't. How do you think that would affect web design? Like, how do you think that would affect – like, how how would you change your strategies like right now if you knew that everyone – most people that are using your website or your app are going to be connected to a very fast network? I actually don't think I would change them, and I think that's because you need to kind of deliver content to the person that – to the to the connection, I guess, that is the slowest, that is the weakest. And I understand you were saying you could use this, you know, connection downlink thing to check, but at the end of the day here, are you really going to stand out if you have higher fidelity photos on your website? With the exception of some things, like, so for example, if you have a stock photo website, if you're a, a specific, if you have a specific case for, oh, you know, you, you know, but you guys should have high fidelity stuff. So you're causing your users to download it. So like stock photos, stock videos, where the preview of the videos are maybe in 480p, but when they download them, they could watch them in 4k or 2k or 1080p or whatever the higher resolution is that. That sort of makes sense. Those cases makes make more sense to me so that the person could just preview it right there in its, you know, sort of native form and what it actually looks like. But at the same time, we're also starting to encroach on like limitations of limitations of just servers. Like we're gonna have like right now a lot of stuff is moving to the cloud. Like just straight up stuff's moving to the cloud. If we have stuff transcoding at double or triple the resolution, we're gonna have you know, the need for way, much more computing. Now, I'm a fan of being just efficient with the computing. I'm always, a, I've always been a fan of that. Like, I understand, you know, oh, there's a bunch more power. Let's take advantage of it. But that's exactly the issue, right? Is we outpace ourselves with certain things. We outpace ourselves as we've had a discussion with the, with the headphone jack and with the, the battery technology of wireless. It's like, well, all phones have wireless. Yeah, but not all, not all wireless headsets have great batteries and not anything really has that great of a battery because batteries haven't, in my opinion, come that far. And so I'm sort of leaning in with that argument. I think I would say, I don't know. I don't know if you want to jump in here, Mike. I I, I don't, I, I think, I think I'm trying to like poke holes in it. Like I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to poke holes in it because we're web developers, I think. And, and I'm looking at it from the standpoint of, Oh my God, we have to now make two iterations. We have to have two data stores. We have to have an HD data store, an SD data store. We have to connect it to do this. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's not the hardest thing in the world. You know, you're basically, in its simplest form, you're basically pulling a different you know, source for an image or a different source for a video. You know, at the end of the day, it's not that. But at the, but also at the end of the day, are we getting the job done now? Yes. Are we in need of having super high fidelity things when they're not local? Not really, not like maybe like only things 
that specifically need it. I could see. Like, I could see, I could see, I'm going to adjust my mic here. I could see Apple doing this. Apple mm-hmm. being like, oh, okay, like, you know, when you're, when you run, I mean, Apple doesn't even have a 5G phone yet, but I could see Apple's. And they, and they won't for a while. And they won't for a while. And I also, you know, as a brief aside, I don't, I don't think that as long as your phone uses the most, the most used and the most current, uh, sort of network, I would never buy a phone based on whether it had 5G. Like if I buy the Note 10, not I'm not right buying now. it because it has 5G. I'm not going to buy a 5G model. I don't really care. Um, especially because it's like, it's twenty. Was it twenty five meg down on LTE? It's like whatever, good enough. Um, or should I, I, it's even faster. Yeah, like like you can you can get up to a hundred. Because it's LTE think, plus now, right? So yeah. But like regardless, like even if it's twenty five meg, it's like why the hell do I need that on a phone? I don't know. I the so there's there's definitely an argument there because some people say like why can't everything just be beautiful? Why can't it just be perfect? Right? And in in mm-hmm. in the futuristic scenario that it is is is. A really good example is this, actually, is Union Station in Toronto, because I was just there, Union Station in Toronto now has sort of that futuristic vibe, where there's where there's literally screens everywhere. There's these big LCD screens, or I don't even know if they're LCD, actually. I think they're LED screens, and they're basically just a big LED array, and they're wrapped around the poles, and they're wrapped around everything, and everywhere you look, you're seeing an ad for Honda, or you're seeing an ad for whoever, like, you're seeing an ad for the... the the go station itself, you're seeing an ad for whoever. So they're selling the space. They have these nice big, like, you know, curved displays or literally around poles and all this, but those displays don't look very good. They don't look very good at all. If you get like, if you're kind of far away, it looks nice. You get kind of close. You're like, that's just an led array. It kind of looks, kind of looks bad. Right. But slowly billboards just out and about, you know, not necessarily just in union, but like out and about are also slowly changing into screens. And so it's what I'm trying to say with that is that it's hard to tell when people will upgrade just for the sake of making it better. Like when like they they had posters all over the place, they could have just swapped the posters every day or swapped the posters every month, but they wanted to have these screens to make it make it better. But they didn't choose, you know, an infinity display. They didn't choose some sort of crazy Samsung display, some sort of 4K display. So it'll lag behind. And I don't know whether the amount of usability you get from an HD video or an HD picture is enough to say, let's just use up more of the bandwidth. Because is it hard to compress photos in that? Not really? No. And your screen is so small. Like, your your phone screen is small. At the end of the day, tablet screens generally are small as well. And so you're not getting this... You know, like when someone has like a 60 inch TV, but it's like 720p, so you can really tell. But if you have like a 720p, 32 inch TV, it's like you, you know, you're going to have some people that are like, that's probably just 1080p. Like they think it's full HD or whatever. It, it's, I think it's kind of getting down to that number now where like I have a really nice monitor now. I can see like a monitor on my desktop. I can see that some of this stuff that I'm looking at, some of the UI elements I'm looking at right now are not high fidelity. I don't, I don't see the, Software developers changing that anytime soon, they'll be essentially dragged into doing it eventually, or they may just never do it. That's that's yeah. sort of where I'm coming from. And you got to remember here, there's also big companies out there that are specifically still catering to Internet Explorer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I it's a, it's going to be a slow burn. I think it's going to be a slow burn. But I think a couple of things that I I can think of off the top of my head is. Um, Allowing the the fact that we will have very good stable 
connections will allow for virtualization as well through the browser. And what I mean, what I mean by that is maybe there will be some sort of, and, and I'm thinking futuristic. I'm, I'm trying to think of something, something different. You know what I mean? Something that we can't do right now that we would be able to do with a faster connection and more reliable connections. It, some way of virtualizing experiences. So, like you know, Google Stadia. Yeah. Where you're able to play games and stuff like that through your through your phone. Yeah. On a good connection. Stuff like I'm, – I'm trying to think of how people will use stuff like that. So let's say they have a product that they want to showcase. Uh, I don't know what it would be, but they want to show you a really awesome 3D render of that product. And maybe they want to show you how you could use it with interactive interactivity in the browser. Yeah. Right? For, for whatever reason. I don't know why they would want to do that, but let's say they do. Um, right now, it would be difficult because A, you would have to download all those assets – and B, you would have to then have a phone that was capable enough to running those assets and generating this 3D interactive 3D model that someone can interact with in real time. What I could see happening is, again, everything's going to the cloud that like you were mentioning. The rendering would happen on the cloud. And with the great internet connection that you have to the cloud, you would just connect to the virtualization of that rendering and be able to use it whenever you want and like be able to go through that 3D model and interact with it without even, you know, generating heat on your phone. Your phone would just be cool and your battery wouldn't have been used because you're going through that internet connection, that great, like the really steady and low ping. That's another thing with 5G is that since you're always close to a node, it's low ping. So that's another huge thing. So you will be able to play Google Stadia on a 5G connection, no problem. Right. Right. So that's, a, that's another big advantage. So again, that low ping, the higher bandwidth will allow for more virtualization. And again, there are a lot of other problems with that. Like you were saying, going to the cloud, you're going to need more processing everywhere. Those massive cloud data centers will need to become more powerful and more powerful. But regardless, that's happening, right? So why not? Like Azure is creating a more powerful cloud computing platform. Google is creating one, right? Like there's two very big competing ones right now, currently. And they're just going to get more, going to get bigger I'm sure Amazon will will join the fray at some point with their own cloud co- computing platform and it won't I don't think it'll just just be used for gaming is my theory. I think that this is a longer play for more complex demonstrations, more complex simulations. So comp- companies will be able to just use those cloud computing like really powerful machines like because these things like for Google Stadia are pretty powerful. Without having to just having, you know, just having a thin client at their work, not heating up their work any, any extra, not having to use a bunch of power, just having a really good connection is all you really need. I think that's the play. I think that's where the 5G will take us. It's going to be more virtualization than anything else. I kind of agree with you that higher fidelity assets, higher fidelity videos don't make a lot of sense and serving to both because you're always going to have to serve to both, right? isn't going to work too well, but being able to, like if a large section of the population is already on it and you got to think like the people that are already on it are probably the people with the buying power to purchase these things that you're, that you're like, uh, you know, promoting or advertising or demonstrating, whatever. Uh, I think that will happen. I think that there will be an engine for that built into web browsers at some point in the future. I don't know if there is right now, but I think at some point in the future, there will be kind of like a, a plugin or maybe it'll be built right into Chrome or something like that, where you'll be able to take advantage of a virtualization tunnel 
and uh, have have the ability to kind of connect to these massive data centers and do something on them. I agree with that. I would say that in terms like like kind of like what I was saying, where only in a particular case of like a stock photo or a stock video website, like where you're really into the quality of the video. Like, I mean, obviously with your examples where you're connecting to these larger cloud, like essentially you're connecting to web apps, you're connecting to cloud, cloud hosted apps, whatever you want to call them. That makes more sense. That makes a lot more sense if it's, if it's something like that, if it's something like a, because we're getting to the point where you could, you could technically not have uh, a line coming into your home and you could just have some sort of 5g, you know, dot or something. I'm sure they'll market it like that. 5G dot where it's like in your house, it's like a little router and then that's it. You know, there you go. Is your modem router little thing there? You have whatever it is. What did you say? A gig theoretical down or no, 20 gig theoretical down and gigabit. Yeah. And then that's it. Like you're wait, wait for 5G. It's only one gig or I thought it was 20 for 5G is 20 gigabit theoretical, but you're never going to reach those. But speeds. even then, like, like right <clears> now <throat> people are like, if you had, if you had today, seriously, if you had 50 down and 50 up, your day-to-day stuff, you're not going to notice it. You're only going to notice it when yeah. you're downloading a huge file. Like if you're downloading, you know, something that isn't instant, you're going to be like, well, it's, you know, it's taking a while. So with, yep. with something like that, like maybe this is easier to get into rural areas. Maybe this is the way that it's going to go. And I can definitely see that. And then with that being said, you're correct. When you're connecting to higher fidelity things like Stadia through the browser, that makes a lot of sense. The website game, I would say, doesn't make sense unless it's in certain cases. But these, it really kind of takes a developer's innovation, right? No one, yeah. no one saw Stadia coming so quickly. I don't think. Like, I think it was something that we saw coming, but I don't think we saw it coming so quickly. And or at least I didn't see it coming so quickly. And so, that's sort of that's sort of my opinion. I would agree. Is there's definitely going to be a use for it? Absolutely. I think it's definitely going to be the future. But I definitely don't think. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Like, if you're trying to buy a 5G phone just to get these speeds, in my opinion, I think you're getting a little ahead of yourself. Now, one thing that does skew our opinion that I did want to state is the fact that Canada is just now getting unlimited data plans. And they're extremely limited. So it'll be like, it'll be like, (laughs) unlimited, unlimited, in quotes. In quotes. So it'll literally be like, oh, get 10 gigs of of our fast data. And then you go down to like, like the local turtle pace after that 10 gig, like after you fit your 10 gig. So you really couldn't replace your home, your home's internet, unless you use it very sparring sparingly with like a phone. I did know someone that used to do that with a network out here called wind. Wind was a, what, well, it, it still exists, but it's called something else. Now I think it's called freedom or something. Freedom. And they don't, as far as I know, offer unlimited data. I mean, check your sources, but they used to be all about unlimited data and all about unlimited everything. And then it kind of got, that got kiboshed. And now they, now they're, you know, with the limited guys, I guess, um, again, check because they may have an unlimited plan, but like Rogers just got an unlimited plan. Like there's a couple others that just got unlimited plans. Like this is something that is brand new last year. The 10 gig plan was like, was like the bee's knees out here. Like it was like people were going crazy about the 10 gig plan. So the reason why I mentioned this is, you know, not to complain about our carriers or couriers or our careers, not to complain careers. about the UPS, but no, <laughs> but uh, not to complain about our carriers. But what it is, is that it does skew our opinion where we say like, well, I'm not lo- going to waste, you know, 15 megabytes on loading a freaking video. Yeah. Like that's ridiculous. And that's, yeah. And that's why I said uh, in an ideal situation where 
I should have said unlimited data is obviously of, of course, assumed because of course. without without unlimited data, this is completely and utterly useless. Oh, yeah. Like you might as well just throw the like this. Five G in Canada, in my opinion, is probably the dumbest thing that you could <laughs> yeah, possibly. It's useless. Do. Yeah. Like, like I can't believe that <laughs> Bell and Rogers are trying to promote it. They're just trying to promote it to be buzzwords and stuff like that. Like it's a joke to me. So when people are going to open up their phones, and then, and then, their and entire data yep, package. Good. Is they're gone. they're like, going to yeah. send gigs. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. And they're never going to change. Like I don't know. I think it's it's a joke. The people at those companies are just using it to promote their own brands. They're not using it as an actual functional thing for people in, in Canada. But I think that at some point, maybe it'll become functional, at least in the United States, it will become functional for people. Um, and it is in some way, shape or form functional right now there, because like you were saying, they have unlimited plans. We do not. I don't count those 10 gigabyte unlimited plans as unlimited, because once you're reached your 10 gigabyte unlimited limit uh you can pretty much only message people like that's what it allows you to do and check like certain search results and stuff like that that's it it wouldn't even let you stream i'm not really sure how slow it goes down no yeah it won't it it won't let you stream so not even music like you couldn't even stream music maybe you can stream spotify music yeah you might i was wondering if like like big music nuts i wonder if it would just literally stream like they could just stream now but 10 gigabytes for a music nut, that's infinite for them. Oh, that's like, outrageous. 10 yeah, that's outrageous. Be like, man, yeah, I, I, I demand a, a streaming 300 songs simultaneously. Unless they're streaming high fidelity music on like, what, what is it, Tidal or something? I think Tidal allows it's you to stream Flax, which are, yeah. But if you're streaming on Spotify, <laughs> 10 gigabytes is essentially unlimited. Yeah, unless you have a whole bunch of those premium accounts. And you just stream in yeah. somehow, stream at 300 songs at once, which is outrageous. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, <sighs> That that that's definitely why I wanted to bring it up is because even though we were you know talking in the theoretical perfect scenario, it our thought process always just by default, almost by muscle memory, always brings into account our local situation. Our local situation is that we are very limited and we pay out the ass for for smartphones, and we also pay a lot for other services here in Canada as well. So and our currency is worth less. So oh Canada now. So with that, our Patreon. Yeah, no. <laughs> our Patreon, now in American dollars. No. Um, I think it is actually in American dollars. I don't actually know. But anyway, double check that for me and then hit me up on Twitter, which I don't check. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I I don't know whether you want to run the own conclusion, Mike. I don't know if you had any more questions or any more uh, things to add to this episode. Let's do it, runner-up. Alrighty, well, thank you for listening, and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via at HTML All The Things. That's on Facebook and Instagram. We're also on Twitter via at HTML Everything. We are on Medium, and we're on GitHub. And remember, we're also on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML All The Things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And with that said, many thanks to our $3 tier patrons. That's Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. You can find him at youtube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript. Works is spelled W-E-R-K-S. You can also find uh, Garrick for... you can also find Garrick. You can also find Garrick at RabbitWorks. No. You can find Garrick from Local Path Computing at localpathcomputing.com. You can also, or also thank you. I can, why am I saying you can also now? You can also find Craig at Local Path, which is also at RabbitWorks, which is, no. Okay. Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design. You can find him at localpathcomputing.com. Many thank yous to Craig, aka Cosworth, and last but not least, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital. You can find him at RabbitWorks, and no, I'm kidding, at blueblackdigital.com. <laughs> Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on, and we are signing off. <laughs>